Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Barry Brothers and Rudd with me, Hannah Crosby. We're delighted to be recording our second series right here in our historic home in St. James's. Together, we'll be uncorking and discussing the wines our experts have pilled from their own collections, each from a wine region you may not have discovered, but undoubtedly deserves to be on your radar. This episode will focus on collecting and enjoying South American wine. The wines of Chile and Argentina normally feature quite strongly at the start of a wine lover's journey. The wines are rich, ripe and enjoyable, but there is a perception of simplicity. However, we'll be opening a bottle of 2016 Polenta Estate that will dispel that myth. Together with buyer Catriona Falstead NW and account manager Fergus Stewart, we'll learn why South America offers incredible quality and value across its regions. Kat, Fergus, thank you so much for sitting down with me to delve into the intricacies and dispel some of the myths surrounding South American wine. Kat, welcome back to the podcast. Dedicated listeners will remember you from our first season, but could you briefly explain your buying role at Berry Brothers and Rudd for us? Yeah, sure. So uh, my official title is Rest of the World Buyer, Mm -hmm. um, which is a little confusing. But basically, I buy all of our regions where we're sort of working directly with producers or where we represent those producers here in the UK from regions that are uh, effectively South America, North America, Rhone, South of France, Mm -hmm. Spain, Portugal, Australia, New Zealand. South Africa, Germany, Austria, etc. So mm-hmm. anywhere that's not the kind of the regions of Bordeaux, Burgundy, Loire, Champagne, mm-hmm. effectively. It's you. Yeah. And Fergus, welcome to the podcast. Could you describe what the average day of an account manager at Barry Brothers and Rudd looks like? Uh, hi, Hannah. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there really is an average day um, okay. in the life of an account manager. We have a fantastic team and we're very lucky to spend all of our time talking to our great clients, helping them build their cellars and collecting wines. That can be face to face in our wonderful premises here at St. James's Street through mm-hmm. to talking to people via email and on the phone and going out to meet people and occasionally, you know, having the odd lunch or dinner here and there, which is one of the great perks of the job. Oh, yeah. I'm very jealous of that side of your job. You mentioned our beautiful historic home at St. James's, and I want to take a second to talk a little bit about the amazing location we're recording in, which overlooks Pickering Place. Fergus, would you tell us a bit about its history? So we're in the long room. For those customer of ours who are listening who might have come here for a dinner, it's a very lavishly and beautifully decorated um, dining room. Mm. Part of the Georgian part of the site here, um, as you said, overlooking Pickering Place, which is London's smallest private square. Um, scene of the last duel with swords to be able to be fought in London. I can imagine a couple of young dandies probably having a go at each other about who was paying the bill for lunch at the club or something like that. But um, no, we're very lucky to be able to, to have such, um, such wonderful spaces here here to use to entertain clients and Mm. through our wine school and and private events and Kat I'm sure has done plenty of dinners here and (laughs) I've been very lucky to do some dinners here including I'm actually doing one next Thursday as well so it's always a a lovely part of the building to be in and and just a really nice space that we love sharing with our customers. And let's explore the subject we're here today to talk about the wines of South America. Fergus you had the good fortune to visit a few years ago and I gather it was rather eye-opening. It it was a 
fascinating and fantastic trip that sadly was very short as mm. well um, just um, 48 hours um, in Chile um, which seems like an extraordinary long weekend away as much, as much time on the plane as on the ground almost but um, no I was, I was very lucky as part of a group of um, other wine merchants to be um, entertained by the Chadwick family um, and taken out to see their wonderful um, estates in, in Chile for a, what, what literally was a weekend but um, it was an eye-opening trip Chile is a staggeringly beautiful country and one I can't wait to get back to um, the moment I can get a good excuse to get out there again. And Kat, you've previously said that as an entry point, South American wines tend to feature early on in the collecting journey. Can you explain what you mean by that? I think it's more in people's sort of wine experience journey initially before mm. they get into collecting. Just South American wines uh, tend to be, broadly speaking, very approachable, uh, fruity, ripe, easy drinking styles mm. at the lower end. Customers or general consumers will be interested in that style coming into wine because it's just very approachable and understandable wine to drink. Mm. Um, but that's only at the lower end. Once you start exploring the region and the wines of the region in more detail, you find out there's a lot more to discover in South America. But I think that's probably one reason why people often start with those wines to sort of to to drink at home and then to eventually start selling at the more premium examples. Mm. So what is the reality when it kind of comes to South American wine? Because obviously we're all familiar with Malbec. It's one of the first wine styles that I would say not even wine enthusiasts, like everyone's familiar with. What kind of surprises can we expect to find there? I'm not going to discount Malbec. Malbec's Mm -hmm. a fantastic wine style and a very popular one. And Malbec comes at all sorts of different price points and qualities Mm -hmm. as well. And uh, you can have, you know, the easy drinking Malbec that some people will start with, but then you get some really intense, complex, rewarding styles of Malbec, which are beautiful wines to drink and also with good cellaring potential. Mm -hmm. Other styles that, I mean, Malbec is generally, not exclusively, but generally you'll find it from Argentina. Chile Mm -hmm. has a bit of Malbec too, but most of the big names you'll you'll hear about are from Argentina. but over in Chile, you've got a real broad spread of grape varieties. Um, but of, Chile's quite well known for its Cabernet, for a grape called Carmenere, which is quite specific to Chile, although it actually started in Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Or you can get, actually, there's some lovely Chilean Pinot Noir out there as well. Mm. It's a little bit harder to find. Um, and white wines as well, Sauvignons and Chardonnays. These are all made over in Chile. Sauvignon and Chardonnay also in Argentina, just mm. uh, slightly. So Argentina's just slightly dominated by, yeah. by Malbec um, mm. and the red wines. Yeah, well, there's clearly a lot to be delving into in this podcast. But just as a starting point, Fergus, we asked you to bring in a bottle of wine from your own rack that represents everything brilliant about South American wine. It's sitting right there in front of us. Could you tell us a bit about it? I'll give you a very brief introduction and then I'm actually going to hand over to Kat, who I think um, has a far more significant um, understanding and role in this wine. But um, from our friends Polenta, who um, we, we've been working with for a long time and are one of the leading estates in um, in Argentina. Um, and it's their 2016 Palma Carola Malbec, which is a sort of effectively a super cuvee taken from their, from their very best plots. And Kat will talk you through the blend because I believe she may have had a hand in it. And, oh, really? and there's a fascinating stories to go with it but um, I think more importantly let me pull the cork out and then we can have a taste yes yes please right so we've all poured ourselves a beautiful glass of wine okay so this is as Ferg said this is a Palma Carola Malbec 2016 Malbec from Polenta Estate Polenta is a great producer in Argentina um, one that we've worked with for a very long time here at Berry Brothers they make our Berry Brothers own label Malbec for us as well and we also take their other wines and we had talked for for quite a few years I'd talked with them about you know they were quite interested in doing a super Mm -hmm. cuvee level 
style. We get quite a lot of interest here in really premium styles of Malbec. Yeah. Their wines didn't go quite that premium. They, they're premium, but not super cuvee level. Um, but it was something they'd never really had a chance to focus on and something that, that we'd not really explored with them. And I was on a buying trip to South America in 2019. The plan of the trip was to attend to fly into Santiago and then hop on a plane over the Andes to Mendoza. Mm -hmm. It's only an hour's flight. I had two days with Polenta there. And then the plan was to get the flight back to Santiago and then to continue the trip in Chile. I landed in Mendoza, all was well, that the first morning I was with Polenta and then suddenly we heard that there was a strike at the airports in Argentina that was just started that day and was going to continue basically for the entire week. This was a Monday. It would be very difficult to get out of, of Argentina, particularly that Mendoza airport was closed down. I explored all sorts of options and there were really no options to leave by plane. So I thought, okay, next way to get back to Chile is by bus. Mm -hmm. So I booked a bus. I went to the bus station at 7am in the morning but I found out, I sort of got wind of it actually overnight, there'd been a heavy snowfall in the Andes and the route back to Chile, the pass called the Paso Cristo Redentor was closed because of the snowfall and no one knew when that was going oh to gosh. reopen either. So I was literally stuck in Argentina, in Mendoza. And Edu Polenta was checking up on me, making sure that everything was okay. And I let him know that, that morning that I was I would not be leaving. And he, he said, hold on, I've got an idea. Um, and he rang me back about two minutes later and he said, right, I've spoken to my dad and we'll get you back to the winery. Let's have a go at blending this super cuvee we've always talked about. Amazing. So by 10 o'clock that morning, I was back at the winery, which is again, it's about an hour's drive outside of Mendoza with Edu Pulenta, who Edu and Diego tend to run the estate day to day these days. But his father, Eduardo Pulenta, is still involved and was very much involved in, in establishing the winery. Um, and Eduardo Senior was there as well with Javier Leforte, who is their really wonderful winemaker. Um, so Javier Leforte, Eduardo Senior and Edu and I all sat down round a table. Javier had brought out all these samples of different types of Malbecs, a special, the most, the best Malbecs they had mm -hmm. at Polenta. I mean, it was quite a treat, this, yeah. this blending experience. And we set to work and uh, started blending. And it was a brilliant experience to blend with these people who are absolute top of their game in Argentina for, mm. for making Malbec. Their wines are amazing. And we put together this wine, which I am Actually, I, I'm exceptionally proud of it um, yes, because it was be. it was a wonderful afternoon or whole day really with them blending different styles of of Malbec from various different plots and parcels that, mm. that they that they own. Um, Pulenta have quite significant holdings in both the Alto Agrelo area and in the Uco Valley area, so there's quite a lot of difference in style, in feel and texture of mm. all of these different plots of Malbec. I think we had a 10 to 12 samples in total that we started with and then we brought it down to this one final blend. Yeah, and you said that the day you spent blending, it was kind of like writing a recipe. Mm. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, of course. I mean, blending is a fascinating task to do because you can own, you can add, you can have one wine and you can add, you know, even 2%, 3% of another wine to that mm -hmm. and the whole wine will change completely. It, it never ceases to amaze me how much only a little bit of wine can change the overall feel of the wine. Um, so for this, this is a 90% Malbec wine, but there are four different uh, components to that Malbec, each from each with a different sort of character. So mm -hmm. one of the comp components was like higher altitude and the tannins were a little bit what we were looking for. There was another component with a little bit more acidity, etc. Mm -hmm. So you're using these parts of different components of wines from barrel to effectively flavor and give texture and body to the final wine. And on top of that, we also added in at the end, a little bit of Cabernet Franc, 
there's a really nice kind of sweet red cranberry core to this wine and that's coming from this tiny amount of Cabernet Franc in there, mm. it's like 2-3%. And we also have a little bit of Petit Verdot. Petit Verdot gives a little bit of extra spice and interest to the wine. And we added in a little bit of um, a rather exceptional plot of Merlot actually that Pimenta have, which was mm. a bit of a surprise, but it's a beautiful little plot of Merlot. They've only got about less than a hectare and that added a little bit of suppleness to the final blend. Mm. So that's that's where we ended up. And have you tasted it? Is it just as good as you remember? It, I was very delighted when um, I last tasted this last July, actually, when it finally arrived with us because we blended the wine, but then it went back into barrel for you know a couple of years. Mm. Finally uh, arrived in our cellars last July. Wow. And um, yeah, I was very pleased that it tasted as good as it does. Mm. I think it's definitely worthy of the Super Cuvée title. 100%. I think it's utterly delicious, Kat. And I have to say, um, I remember talking to you about it and, and, and you described it and it's exactly as you described it. But I think a lot of people would see a Super Cuvée Malbec and think of something really dark and mm. intense. And it doesn't have that. It has this wonderful aromatic lift to it. And I think, um, yeah, really... Absolutely delicious. Thank you. I think that's one thing I think really defines Polenta as a property. They've always brought this real elegance and freshness into their Malbecs. Um, Mm. I've always, in my experience of working with Malbec, I've realized there's sort of two ways you can go with Malbec. There's the really rich, heavy, chocolatey style, which is probably the style that more people are more generally familiar with because it's also the style that you sometimes find at a lower level, like in the supermarkets. They go for mm. that kind of mouthful and texture, but it's not always a sort of honest, true wine. And then you get the Malbecs like this that have all that lovely richness and, and fruit to them, but they're not heavy. Mm-hmm. They have, have got that lift to them. They are refreshing. And it's a Malbec that you want to come back and have another sip of rather than uh, a Malbec that, you know, one, one sip is enough. Not just socks off. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Mendoza, where Polenta are based, is a region that most people know about. But are there any other regions that deserve a closer look? In South America, absolutely. I mean, in Argentina, from the premium wines, you are pretty much, you know, defined to Mendoza. There are obviously other regions, but mm-hmm. Mendoza is the reason that Mendoza is so special is that it's the it's right next to the Andes, and that's the highest point there um, where the Andes come. And obviously, a lot of vineyards here are at very high altitudes, sort mm-hmm. of 800, 900, 1,000 meters high, mm-hmm. and that's the reason that um, premium quality wines can be made. Um, so effectively here and successfully here mm-hmm. because the altitude is what calms down that the heat that you would otherwise get in these wines. If mm-hmm. you didn't have the altitude, these would be big, rich, but blousy and flabby and, mm-hmm. and not refreshing wines, but the altitude gives them that. So absolutely Mendoza. Over in Chile, for example, um, you've got multiple regions in Chile. Chile in many ways is more diverse on a regional perspective than mm-hmm. Argentina for quality wines. The Maipo Valley is very well known. There's a lot of Cabernets that are made in Maipo. A Colchagua Valley Valley as well. Further down, you've got Maule, you've got Itata, which does some really interesting but sort of slightly different styles of wines, quite sort of fresh. You can get um, Sanso style, lighter styles mm-hmm. of, of, of red wines and some beautiful white wines from Itata. And then further up north, um, north of Santiago as well, you've got Casablanca Valley and other regions around there, which are really quite well known for their Sauvignon Blanc. Mm-hmm. Um, our Berry's own Sauvignon comes from Casablanca Valley mm-hmm. from a producer called Di Martino, and they do a wonderful job in making a very refined, quite old world style mm. of Sauvignon. And you've briefly mentioned white wines. I know, Ferg, you express a particular fondness for the white wines of South America. I think they're, they're very underrated is, mm. is, is the answer. I mean, and they, and they cover the gamut from, as, as Kat said, a sort of more entry level, but very fine quality Sauvignon Blancs from Casablanca to some 
world-class Chardonnays mm. from Itata, you mentioned, mm. Aconcagua Costa, mm-hmm. um, Bio Bio is now quite famous for Riesling, a grape that you wouldn't necessarily mm. expect from South America. So I think, there's, I think there's a huge amount of sort of undiscovered white wine. I think people generally think, if you think South America, you think big, rich reds. Mm-hmm. And actually that's to do Chile in particular, a disservice mm. where they have this huge patchwork of, of different areas able to make, yeah. you know, wonderful whites as well as reds. Absolutely. And to bear in mind, obviously, we're talking about South America quite broadly here. I know we're speaking about Chile and Argentina, but the two countries are very different climatically. They're very, they they happen to geographically sit next door to each other. But those, that, that spine of the Andes Mountains that cuts between the two of them makes a significant difference in, Mm. in the conditions when you are growing grapes there. So in Argentina it tends to be much drier. It's continental. It's it's very shielded from any influence of, of the ocean. Chile, if you can you know visualize it in your mind, is that long strip that runs. It's literally caught between the Andes Mountains and the sea. So you get a huge maritime influence in Chile, mm-hmm. um, making it a cooler climate, and you can get some very refreshing styles. Whereas Argentina tends to be a little bit more about power and sunshine mm. and, and altitude to mitigate that. Mm. Well, speaking of power, Bordeaux-style blends are also of particular importance to South America. Should our claret-loving listeners be tracking these down? Yeah, absolutely. And Cabernets, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon, um, but you can get Cabernet Franc as well. Mm-hmm. All, all of the different Bordeaux varieties are found uh, in South America. Carmenere, as I said, was originally Bordeaux variety. Malbec of mm-hmm. France, obviously. So Chile makes beautiful Cabernets, as I said, particularly from Maipo, but is very well known for, um, well, if you if you know about Chile and you know about wine, is more well known for Carmenere, perhaps, mm-hmm. which is its signature variety in that no one else in the world really makes Carmenere like Chile does. But Argentina as well, uh, we've been talking a lot about Malbec, but their Cabernets and particularly their Bordeaux-style blends that they make in Argentina are, are very impressive. And Fergus, when you're recommending South American wines to your private clients, do you expect the same kind of aging potential from them as these top Bordeaux blends? Uh, absolutely. Again, I'd, I'd echo what Kat said about the quality. Is, you know, these are very much top, top end wines. And we rather easily paint Chile and Argentina into the New World category. But you mm. know, there's 500 years of winemaking history in Chile. Yeah. It's hardly, mm. hardly new. Um, and you know, there's some inc- absolutely incredible incredible producers there, both domestically and joint ventures as well, are a, a big thing in South America. So some great names from, from France in particular, so the Rothschilds, mm. Cheval Blanc has a joint venture in, in Argentina making a wonderful um, wonderful wine called Cheval des Andes. There's Catena and, and Lafitte make a wine called Caro, which is, you know I've had at sort of 10, 15 years old with tons of time left to go mm-hmm. so yeah i think at the very the very top level these wines are you know they're wines to sell it they're wines to age and and they will last as long as any of the classics from europe mm-hmm. but the top wines from south america will not cost anywhere near the same as the top wines from say bordeaux or burgundy no they don't they don't cost as much and i think qualitatively they 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 represent good value when you compare them to their old world or french peers but the, some of them are not cheap anymore by any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination yeah. and again i think um, a lot of consumers see south america as cheap because it's readily available in supermarkets and as Kat's alluded to it's quite often the sort of entry level red wine or white wine that people will have um, but no I think in reality they, they represent remarkable value I mean I look at the wines like sort of Senya from Eduardo Chadwick which is widely considered as one of the sort of top red wines in the world now and it's comparatively good value compared to the, the same quality level from Bordeaux and with the same ageing potential so I think um, value is definitely the word mm. um, and I think they've got huge huge potential and if you look 
looking to buy or collect wines from South America, does looking out for the vintage on the label matter just as much to South American wines as it does for the classic regions? Probably not as much mm-hmm. in, in for a general consumer perspective. Apart from anything else, there certainly is much less knowledge here in, in Europe by most people of mm. what you know an 18 Malbec in Argentina might be like versus a 19, mm. whereas a lot of collectors probably have an idea of what those those vintages might seem like in Bordeaux. Okay. So I think there's there's less kind of understanding of vintage variation. One of my bugbears is that there's no vintage variation in the New World idea. There is vintage variation, obviously, because every year is different. The only thing is that in the New World and in South America, for example, those the variation is less than uh, less extreme than you might find in in more marginal climates over in in the old world. So every vintage will have a difference to it um, in South America, but the general feel of the wines will probably remain more similar than those wines from different vintages in Europe. And in that same way that vintage variation is less obvious, are the effects of climate change less obvious there? Or is that something that winemakers are Almost the opposite. Um, One of the big issues in both Argentina and Chile is the availability of water because these vineyards, a lot of these vineyards are irrigated still in South America, there's there's not much rainfall in Argentina. Mm-hmm. If you don't irrigate or you don't have the possibility of irrigating, then you know ultimately your vineyards are likely to die, which mm. isn't isn't a very good business model. Water is a massive issue in South America and very, very much affected by climate change. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's a very significant issue there. So Fergus, besides Polenta, what other producers should collectors have on their radar? I think um I've mentioned a couple from from Argentina already. I think Catena, definitely Nicholas Catena mm-hmm. is is one. I I think they make fantastic wines. Um, Zucardi, I would say, is another name. In fact, uh, Zucardi was the sort of first South American wine I, I fell in love with years ago. Um, I don't, what wine was it? It was their Q Malbec. They, oh, they make classic, a lot of wines, yeah. uh, fairly classic. <laughs> and it, that we um, there's a wonderful Argentinian steak restaurant called Santa Maria del Sur on the Queenstown Road in Battersea, oh. uh, very close to our old office, um, <laughs> and um, but. Years and years ago, um, I, I used to go there quite well, far too regularly for the, the salary I was on at the time with a friend of mine. But we used to share a bottle of Malbec and have a steak, which is, I suppose, sort of quite quintessential young, young <laughs> professional men thing to do. But um, it really, it really sort of got me into into South American wine. So Zuccardi always uh, very fond of crossing the Andes into Chile. I would say um, the the Chadwick stable, so Senya. Chadwick and their Las Bizarras project in mm-hmm. Aconcagua Costa, as, as mentioned, wonderful, wonderful Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, really competing with the very best of the New World and, and with Burgundy, in fact, on that. Um, Vigna Vic, I think, mm. uh, are well worth looking out in a mm. state-of-the-art winery if you ever get a chance to visit. It looks, looks amazing. Um, and then, obviously, the great sort of Bordeaux, other Bordeaux blends, so Almaviva, Cloa Palta, I think uh, should definitely be on be on people's radars. Mm-hmm. And to round things up, Fergus, could you give listeners one reason why they should be adding a case of South American wine to their cellars? I mean, why, I'm, I'm not going to give you one reason, but why wouldn't you? I mean, okay. <laughs> is the answer really? They are. I mean, there are some some truly spectacular and world class wines yeah. coming from both Chile and Argentina, and wines that you can age, um, wines that are are made in you know like this wonderful um, Polenta Malbec we're drinking now. You know, that made in small batches by exceptional winemakers. And mm. you know, I think um, if they came from France, people would be wouldn't even be thinking mm. twice. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and um, I think. 
uh, so yeah, absolutely. Add, add some diversity to your collection and, and you won't regret it when you pull the corks in, mm. in a few years' time. Brilliant. And Kat, what's one thing about South American wine you wish more people knew? I wish people would, you know, lose this sort of concept that South American wines are just for, for cheap drinking from mm. the supermarket because that is totally not the case. And as Fergus has said, you get such exceptional value from these wines really good price points but premium price points Mm -hmm. but for that you get there's such rewarding glasses of wines and i would love more people to be happy to spend you know more than 20 pounds a bottle Mm -hmm. on a bottle of south american wine because i think they are exceptional and yeah hugely enjoyable wines well said cat fergus all that remains me to say is thank you so much for sharing your stories and knowledge about south american wine with me today thank you thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to browse the producers mentioned in today's podcast and see what wines we have available, visit bbr.com forward slash podcast. Or if you're interested in starting your fine wine collection with Berry Brothers and Rudd, all the information you need can be found on bbr.com forward slash collecting. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or you've been enjoying the podcast in general, do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We hope to welcome you back soon, but until then, thank you again for listening to this episode of Drinking Well.